Hi, and welcome to Hope Floats, a social work podcast that aims to discuss social issues, social work practice, and other misadventures, which more than likely involve giving someone a bus pass. As a disclaimer, this podcast will discuss sensitive issues, which are meant to be thought-provoking and serve as a space to inspire other helping professionals learn, share, grow, and find common ground. Hello, and welcome back to Hope Floats, a social work podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing substance abuse in older adults. And a lot of the trials and tribulations that they face, and what we have noticed as social workers that are gaps in care um, and room or areas for improvement that that definitely need to be uh, discussed. So Katie and I both worked with a patient who uh, had substance abuse history, and I met him first in inpatient, and later on, Katie met him in the inpatient psych unit. So when I first met him, it was right at the beginning of COVID. Everything was really isolated, Um, and he came to the hospital from a substance abuse treatment center and they said he couldn't, he was unable to take care of himself and he couldn't stay there um, because he couldn't complete his ADL showering himself, you know, getting out of bed himself. Um, And mind you, he was, uh, he did have a, a lower leg amputation and did have a wheelchair. And I met him and so they just dropped him off at the hospital? Yes. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, of course, we call them and say, okay, you know, uh, what happened? And, oh, he couldn't do this. He couldn't do that. Okay, well, if he gets a little bit of physical rehab, you know, is he able to go back there? Yeah, if he can do all this stuff on his own, no problem. So we thought, you know, easy peasy. And so then the, this is where... <laughs> The extended hospital stay started. (laughs) Um, He, so a little bit of history on him is he was in his early 60s. And from my conversations with him, he told me he had only recently started uh, a substance abuse issue, which was pills, I believe, Um, pain medication. Like literally maybe two years prior to me even meeting him. And so it was fairly new and he had had an accomplished life as a news reporter and, you know, this didn't affect him until later on. And I liked him. He was a nice guy. He was, and he had one of those like news anchor voices, you know, um, very easy to talk to. <laughs> and <laughs> I love you know, people that have those voices. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I really wanted to help him. Like he sought out treatment on his own. He flew to our state from a different state specifically for treatment. So I thought, okay, he really wants to, you know, make this change in his life. And um, initially one of the first issues was our physical therapist at the hospital um, said he needed, maybe it was like assisted living or something. We were like, no, he's here for substance abuse treatment. Like that's, that's where we need to get him back to. Um, and mind you, like I said, he's not, he's not from our state. So he, 
he doesn't have a home. <laughs> He's not, he doesn't live here. He's literally here for just substance abuse treatment. So then I thought, okay, well, why don't we get him to a facility so we could get him, get some strength built back up so he can go back to this facility. And he was on Suboxone. And this was my first case dealing with that. I thought, oh, okay, the doctor just prescribes it, whatever. But maybe these facilities will think, oh, he's got, oh, he's got a substance abuse issue. We don't want him, you know, because we've certainly seen those places and facilities that, that say that. Um, and he, he certainly had the funds. So there was no money wasn't an, an issue. But no place would accept him with the Suboxone prescription. And he was ready for discharge at this point. And so I've got the doctor saying, why is he here? Why isn't he going to rehab? Well, I can get him to a rehab facility, but they won't accept him if he's on Suboxone. But he needs Suboxone because he's not getting his substance abuse treatment. (laughs) So we're in this big, like, catch-22 and, and my boss, thankfully, she was like, she understood it and was really advocating for me because um, I was struggling to figure out what to do to, to help this guy. Meanwhile, he's just here in the hospital and just having a grand old time. Chilling. Chilling. <laughs> just chilling. He was asking for lots of Diet Coke, I remember. Oh, God. <laughs> just really making himself at home. <laughs> this is where he's going to live now. Um. And I just, I felt so bad for this guy. I felt like nobody's giving this man a chance. You know, he's, he's trying to better himself. He's, he's come here for treatment and through a terrible mix of things um, is unable to continue that right now. And at one point I remember even talking to the facility that he came from and I said, he's in a wheelchair. Like how, what do you mean? He's not able to do shower himself. He can, he can maneuver in and out of the wheelchair on his own. So it was just, it was just very frustrating. And then more people started coming into the picture and you had helped me out with him, um, a few times. Cause I, at some point I was just like, I just don't know what I can do for this guy. <laughs> I just felt really bad for him. And I could tell he was starting to, um, lean on me a little bit more. And, uh, on days that I was off and other social workers worked with him and they would say like, oh, he's so manipulative. And I was like, manipulative. No, he's just this guy we have to help. And, and he's just at the, you know, nobody's, I'm the only one looking out for him. It's kind of what it felt like a little bit. Um, and I, I couldn't see what everyone else saw about him being manipulative. Um, and then what you came into the picture towards the end of his stay, um, just to kind of help me out and help to talk to him a little bit. And finally, one of the psychiatrists said, okay, we're going to put him on a, uh, uh, I want him to sign, what is it called? Like a, like a behavioral contract. Thank you. Behavioral but contract. Before that happened, um, we had tried to look to the community for resources. Oh like, yeah, we did. And uh, that was really like the part that I was really helping you with. Yeah. And this guy didn't have um, insurance. So that made things like really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we had to go through um, just a behavioral health network uh, in the area where we worked to try and get him on a a maintenance program. But I remember, like, because it was COVID, the nursing home, like, we found a place, but the nursing home didn't want to take him to his initial appointments because of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And... So then, like, our hospital had to step it up and, you know, really work with this guy. Yes. I remember that now. And I thought, because you had helped me with that, and I thought, oh, yes, okay, we found it. All we just need to do is get this guy from the nursing facility to this appointment, and he can establish it and get and get his prescription. And then they were – I mean, because really this was, like, what was this, summer of 2020. So it was just – COVID was in full swing. Right. And, um, yeah, that, that was disappointing. Um, it definitely was. Yeah. Cause I mean, we put in a lot of work to like facilitate that and we found Mm -hmm. an agency that would actually work with this guy. Yeah. And we used every super social work skill we had, (laughs) which includes calling everyone, you know, until someone gives you a yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so, so yeah, we ended up making him uh, this behavioral plan where he had to sign and say, you know, I'm not going to abuse this. I'm only going to get so many days prescription of this and whatever it was. I can't, I can't recall exactly. But um, I do remember he – I wasn't there the day he discharged, but he had my, my phone number, my work phone, and uh, I, this is kind of where I guess the boundaries got a little blurry um, that I finally realized, oh, he is a little bit manipulative. <laughs> um, he got there, the ne- and the next day I got a call from him, and he said, I got here, and – the, the like literally the whole issue was suboxone get making sure he had this because that is an opioid and you can't just stop giving it to someone right and uh so we we had to make sure that he was given it at a certain time that way he got to the facility and then he would get his next dose later that night or the next morning whatever it was and so he called me the de- next day and he said i haven't gotten it yet and I'm like, well, what do you mean you haven't gotten it yet? He's just like, oh, the nurse, she, she came in, but then I got discharged, and, but she didn't give it to me. And now it's, you know, almost noon the next day, and he still hasn't gotten it. And I don't know how often he was taking it. But I, obviously, he missed a dose. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, of the literal six weeks or two months that he was there, this, this was like Suboxone was on the pedestal. Like, this is what we were aiming for. <laughs> And, and we worked so hard for this and then he gets there and it, it did, it slipped through the crack again. So I remember, um, the guy from the nursing facility, I called him and I was like, can you come to the hospital and we will give you his prescription? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, sure. And, um, so he finally did get it and he called me a couple more times, but by then I was like, okay, you know. I've spent my time with you. I've got you to where you need to go. We've got your supports in place. You've got a social worker there who's helping you. We've kind of transferred the responsibility from our hospital to the facility now. And I remember he just kept calling me and I 
just had to set a boundary of, listen, I can't do anything for you while you're there. You know, some things, yes, but I was like, you have to work with this facility and this social worker now. And uh, I just remember, I mean, I heard him talking to her on the phone and I just remember thinking, oh gosh, like you never spoke to me that way. So I, I definitely got to see that side of him that everyone else saw that in my like newbie social worker, positive looks for the good in everybody attitude. (laughs) I missed, (laughs) you know, um, how did that feel like when you saw that side of him? hmm. Well, first off, I felt stupid for not seeing this that everybody else saw. Um, but almost in a way because he wasn't showing me that side. Um, I didn't think he was being manipulative with me. I just thought, you know, oh, he thought I'm like a nice person. I'm really trying to do something for him. So he was respectful and, and nice to me. Um, but then, yeah, when I saw that side of him, I was just like, oh, okay, you are there. Um, and I don't know, just disappointed and like almost almost in a way that is stereotypical of addicts that like I saw that like that stereotype a little bit of mm-hmm. of them kind of manipulating and 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 saying the wrong thing to get what they want and I, I almost like you know confirming <laughs> confirming a little bit that that's that is a, a stereotype for a reason um and just a little sad too that it, it's been, it, it, I don't know. I just, I wish he would have been able to just go back to the treatment center because that's really what he needed. And as we'll see from your side of the story, we don't really know how it ended, I guess. Um, but it, I, he's, yeah, he's one of those cases that was like my first of being fooled almost. <laughs> um, so that was just a little like disappointing and just like, I just felt bad for him. I mean, I feel like you can do those two things at once, you know, like you can notice a behavior and know that like they are behaviors, like folks are very good at getting their needs met mm-hmm. on one hand and they're going to do what they have to do to get those needs met. And you can still feel sad and frustrated you know that this is where they're at you know yeah and I mean Mr. Biscuit was there for a long time (laughs) he was and his name is not Mr. Biscuit we have changed his name (laughs) we have Um, so then, uh, so that was my last, you know, kind of interaction with him. And then I know uh, now he, he, you got more involved with the case from here on out. So um, can we hear about uh, how that happened with you? You know, uh, so, I mean, my time with him was a brief, but, um, there's just a lot going on, you know? Um, unfortunately, and I don't even know why he was 
originally admitted to like inpatient care um probably because they wanted to get him some rehab you know but I think it was the wheelchair he was in a wheelchair so I mean this became kind of an issue in itself you know he kind of like teetered on the fence of being able to admit to inpatient psych and then and then he just couldn't because none of the attendings would accept him to psych anymore because I mean psychiatric wards particularly where I was you know unless you have a med psych bed or like a geriatric geriatric psych bed it's very challenging to get somebody on a psych floor that's older and has you know more physical challenges um which is definitely a barrier to getting these folks treatment. Um, And if I'm remembering correctly, he was like in his late sixties, early seventies. And, you know, he had the amputee. No, he was, he was like 64. Cause I remember it was, it was his birthday that summer. He had just turned 64. So he was rather young, but still had kind of the um, same kind of older, person issues (laughs) yeah yeah you know um I mean that's still considered you know an age where you can call like adult protective services like they're considered an older adult Mm -hmm. um but when I got him and you know just to kind of like piggyback on like what I did upstairs I mean I had very little interaction with him like it was like straight business. Like I just said, are you okay with this? Can we sign a release to try and get you some Suboxone treatment in the community? And he said, yes. And then I was done with him, you know, and essentially like I was just working with you and the team after that. But, um, but when he came to my floor, I was working with him and, um, you know, I, he just, uh, he really took our, fo- our like nursing staff for a ride, you mm-hmm. know, um, he was very demanding with a lot of the staff. Um, and I mean, truthfully, he was very inappropriate to be on our floor. He had to be on like a, a close obs because we had the psych beds that are like pretty much on the floor. So it was hard for him to get, you know, up and into a wheelchair and the wheelchairs that we have, unfortunately, I mean, they're bulky and awkward, you know, and they're special because you can't really take them apart. Like, you know, to, to use any part of the wheelchair to be a weapon. So, um, I mean, so all of those things like came together and, you know, initially when I went to meet with him you know we were trying to figure out like where he was going to go next because he transitioned from the nursing home where he went to go into an assisted living facility the assisted living facility didn't want to take him back because he wasn't paying his bills and he said he was the facility confirmed that he was not um you know, and so <clears throat> I, 
you know, obviously wanted more information. So, you know, one of the things that we do pretty consistently on inpatient psych is, you know, getting collateral information from families. And uh, he was agreeable to signing a release for me to speak with um, his brother. And, you know, like, it's always, you never really know what to expect when you talk to a family member. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way he, he made it sound like when he was initially talking to you is this was a very recent issue, you know, and, you know, he just needed a little bit of help, you know, to, to get back on the, the right road. But when I was talking to the brother, the brother had, he mentioned that he had had a really hard time for a long time mm. and had pretty much burned all of his bridges with his family the brother um, was actually a, a detective and, you know, retired, like, police officer. And I guess, you know, when they were younger and he, you know, had young kids, he was really trying to help them out because he had lost his, uh, his job as this TV reporter. And he moved him in and, you know, he's just exhibiting really peculiar behaviors, especially around his kids. Um, you know, and he obviously like said, like, you can't stay here. So ever since that time, like he was just kind of like a rolling stone, you know? Um, so, I mean, this had been going on for like 30 years and, I mean, that's that's like (laughs) so challenging, you know, like someone's been doing something for 30 years. It's very hard to change that behavior. And this gentleman had very poor insight about what he was doing, you know, and the brother had said, listen, if you can commit him somewhere, like and lock (laughs) him away for the rest of his life, I would, I would be on board. I'm like, yeah, that's not exactly what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he said that's the literally the only thing that's ever going to help him because wow. he's been in and out of treatment programs for 30 years, you know, and exhibiting all of the same behaviors for 30 years. So that was a very eye-opening conversation. And I remember the next day I went in with the attending psychiatrist and we discussed this. And then he said, I don't want you ever talking to my brother ever again, you know? So, Mm. you know, it kind of like, I mean, you never really know why people like don't tell the truth, you know, whether they're embarrassed or they, you know, want you to think a certain way about them or, they don't want to be judged, whatever the case is, but he no longer wanted any family involvement. Mm. Um, and at that point, like we had gotten what we had needed, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's always better when you can get a family member kind of involved to like support somebody, especially in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he just, he just wasn't ready to like really face himself you know, all of the things that he had said were just 
like straight up not true. And yeah. so it's, it's difficult to work with somebody like that, you know, cause they're obviously in the very early stages of change, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it then came kind of like the conversation, like, what, what do you want to do? You know, you don't want to talk to your family. You don't want to go back to where you were living before and this assisted living facility, they don't want to take you back either, you know? So like, what's the plan? Mm-hmm. And he said that he would consider going back to treatment. And um, so there went the, you know, search to try and find this guy, a treatment center that was going to work with him. And we had tried a lot of different places, you know, that we know historically have accepted mm-hmm. like Medicare. So they're wor- used to working with older populations. But I think what's really challenging is a lot of the facilities that accept Medicare, they, they don't take like substance abuse, you know? I mean, this guy had, you know, some serious psychiatric stuff going on, but he was very active and like he needed to address his substance abuse disorder, which quite frankly, he was not doing. I mean, he was, you know, on a maintenance program, you know, and that's excellent. However, you know, he was using other things too. You know, he popped positive for other things. And, you know, if you're on a behavioral contract for um, a maintenance program, you know, a lot of providers don't want to work with you, you know, and then it's challenging to find a provider at these facilities that's going to continue to prescribe the medication because mm-hmm. you can only prescribe so many um, prescriptions for like Suboxone a month. You know, it's, it's very yeah. heavily like monitored. So, I mean, I tried everything that I could think of and we couldn't find anything, you know, so we had to, you know, go and meet with him again and say like, listen, this is the deal. Like statewide, we can't find you a facility to go to. Like, geez. So, you know, we talked to him about going back into an assisted living facility which he was agreeable to. And it took me like, gosh, I think it took me almost two weeks to like beg a facility to take him. (laughs) Like, I mean, (laughs) you know, when you just like keep faxing the same thing like over and over again. Can you just take another look? (laughs) I know. And then you keep calling like the same people. You're like, listen, you know, I know you've taken people before. Like, just give this guy a chance, you know? Yeah. Please. (laughs) Yeah. You know, then, you know, like, you know, when you're giving someone a very hard referral, like, you want to, like, play up all of their strengths, but be very honest with the facility, too, you know? So it's always very challenging to kind of walk that line with, the people that you've networked with um, that will take patients like that, you know? So 
We found him a facility. And ironically enough, I wasn't there the day he was discharged either. (laughs) (laughs) We did our part. (laughs) I know. I know. So, uh, you know, we, I, I kind of made sure that everything was all set. And I had been off for like, like two days prior to his discharge and uh, the other social worker, I I mean, I guess he had signed out, like he had signed, um, signed out AMA and uh, he wanted to leave. So in the state where we were, you know, you have 24 hours to evaluate a patient and um, release them. You know, if they're not a danger to themselves, others are psychotic, like you have to have to discharge somebody. Mm-hmm. So the facility wasn't willing to take him on that day he wanted to leave. And he had said, well, I am just going to go to a hotel. So Jeez, <laughs> he ended up discharging to a hotel. Um after all that work for the assisted living facility and uh, to my knowledge, I, I don't believe he ever showed up and I have no idea where he is now. You know, I never saw him again after that, but uh, you know, (laughs) it's just, you know, uh, substance abuse is very challenging, Mm -hmm. you know, especially for, older adults you know um you know and this guy didn't have any cognitive issues either you know he's very much with it but especially with folks like with cognitive issues because they've been doing the same thing and same routine for 30 or 40 years you know and now they're starting to decline and then it's really challenging, you know, because folks have less insight about what they're doing too. And it's hard to get them into any kind of treatment program. So. Yeah. I mean, I wish, I wish this guy's story were, you know, like less common, but unfortunately it's very common for older adults, especially like, because Medicare facilities, like if, if they accept Medicare, they can't charge more than what, yeah, like Medicare can bill for, you know, and if you can get insurances that pay more, you know, you, why bother, you Mm -hmm. know, essentially. So Mm -hmm. I think that's why it's really challenging too, to find providers that are willing to work with geriatric patients. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's not, cause it's true. Like in what we're talking about, where it's substance abuse with, with a geriatric population, it's not just substance abuse issue. It's, it's their ADLs. It's their cognitive awareness. You know, it's, it's so many things wrapped up in one that maybe if it was just substance abuse, like, you know, like the younger population, like it's, easier in this sense but when you're dealing with older folks you know there's just a lot more to take into consideration and that you have to think about 
I mean, there's a lot more liability too. Yeah. You know, if someone falls in the facility, you mm-hmm. know, that's an issue. You know, um, a lot of psychiatric medications have, you know, black box warnings, you know, and you're monitoring and- that. And meanwhile, this person has a, a cardiac issue and, you know, What's the black box thing again? I mean, that means that there's like major, like major side effects for the medication, like to include like someone could, could die, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. You know, so, I mean, a lot of the psych meds, you know, it's, it's very challenging to prescribe psych meds to geriatric patients because of that reason, Mm. you know, because it has to happen very slowly, you know, um, from all of the, the Jerry psych patients that I've worked with to include substance use. Um, we had a, a really superb pharmacist on our ward too, that would work very closely with our inpatient team, um, to, to make sure that that happened very slowly, like, to titrate mm-hmm. up the medications because a lot of things can happen, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, some drugs are sedative, you know? So, yeah. And not to mention geriatric patients are usually on other medications as well. Oh yeah. So, so you don't so. know what the drug interaction is going to be. Yeah. You know? So it's, yep. I, I have never really had an easy geriatric placement. Um, for substance use you know Mm -hmm. it's it's always always been challenging even for folks that have like medicare you know um for that same reason you Mm -hmm. know um i don't know if you feel the same way you know i know there are other folks besides this patient that we have you know named mr biscuit but (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, one thing that's honestly just still lingering for me is that, um, cause I, I don't even know if you had told me this, but when you talked to his brother that, that his substance abuse had been something that he'd been dealing with for like 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you saying that just then was like the first time I feel like I've heard that. So I think, <laughs> meanwhile, he's telling me it's been two years, you know? And so I think, again, that's just like, wow, I, I was so fooled. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know. I just that was that had, had me linger in there for a minute. Um, yeah, he gave two very different stories. Yeah, you know, which isn't uncommon, you no. know, um, and I know like acute medicine and um you know, inpatient psych, you know, they operate very differently, you know, like if someone has decision-making capacity up on acute, you don't always communicate with the the families, you know, yeah. especially for a guy like this. It's like, yeah, this is exactly what I need, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. So I do recall um, when I went into his room to talk to him one day when he was on uh, acute medicine, uh, he was FaceTiming with his son. Because I remember he said he had like maybe two, one or two um, sons and that one of them he was talking to like every day. So, I mean, 
to show that just the change in maybe a month or two or however long it was between when he was discharged and when he got admitted to the psych unit that now like no family wants to talk with him, you know, not even his son who was FaceTiming with him every day. So yeah, that's, it's just, it's sad. And you know, what do you think, what would have made his situation a success story? Like what would have need to have need to have been in place for him to be successful and what his goals were in your opinion? You know, I mean, he was on a maintenance program and, you know, success, I guess, is in the eye of the beholder, you know, um, he did what he wanted to do. You know, he left the psychiatric unit and didn't come back and he did what he wanted. So is that unsuccessful? You know, I mean, is the question, you know, uh, I, I feel like I have to like challenge myself a lot in thinking about things like this. Cause ultimately like self-determination is, is the main thing. And I'm always going to advocate for folks, you know, I, I mean, and try and work with them to see if they'll, you know, try and do a safer plan than that one. But, hmm. you know, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily unsuccessful, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, he's on a maintenance program and I don't know what happened to him, but hopefully, you know, he was still working a program like that, you know? But do you think there could have been like anything in the community that could have supported him better than like, like what's lacking out there that, that if it was in place could have helped him. I mean, just Jerry psych beds, you know, and med psych beds um, for inpatient hospitalization, you know, would make cases like this a lot easier Mm-hmm. You know, there are very few in the county where we resided to begin with. Yeah. Um, and it's like an act of God to get somebody to another <laughs> hospital and into a med psych bed. Yeah. You know, it's not impossible, but another case I was working on, like, I think it took us five weeks to get someone to a med psych bed. Um, wow. And- this patient was so depressed, like they needed ECT, um, you know, so it, it took a while, you know, but um, it's, it's not impossible, but, mm-hmm. you know, patients like this too, like that have these kind of behaviors when they say they want to leave, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, people want them gone, you know, if I'm being very honest, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. so Mm-hmm. there's not a lot of trying to convince them to stay, you know, um, yeah. which is unfortunate, but, yeah. um, you know, and just, I mean, just access to substance abuse, like residential programs for elders, you mm-hmm. know, there's, there's just very few out there, Yeah, you know, for the reasons that I had mentioned, but, you know, 
I think too, there's like this culture in like residential substance abuse treatment programs. And I mean, I'm going to preface this by saying there's a lot of really great substance abuse treatment programs out there, but a lot of them will say yes uh, to get the insurance money, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and then dump them at the hospital. Like what happened to this guy? Yeah. When it doesn't work out because they didn't really take into consideration. Oh yeah. Like, he's got all this going on. Yeah. You know, and I mean, most substance abuse facilities just aren't equipped to deal with that, you know? So they want the young spring chickens that Mm -hmm. don't really have a lot medically going on, you know, I mean, it's not an easier population. I mean, in terms of like, you know, different comorbidities it is you know but yeah yeah um there's just not a lot out there I mean we Mm -hmm. need more substance abuse treatment programs that are willing to work with older adults and I mean recently I was I, I was actually talking to um a psychiatric a psychiatry resident um and they're planning to go into a fellowship for Jerry psych but you know he was saying like you know unless I can get a job like you know that pays what I want to be paid I don't know that I'm going to stay in that field you Mm -hmm. know so for a lot of the psychiatrists like that can specialize in Jerry psych there's not a lot of incentive to stay with that population yeah because I mean, why would you, if you're going to med school and you can make more money and you've got mm. student loan debt, you know, yeah. you're, you're like <laughs> not like gonna, you have to be really passionate about yeah. it and in it for, for more than the money to, to work with the geriatric population. And it's sad, right? <laughs> you know, right. So mm. it's. There's a lot of a lot of issues, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of systems issues with this, you know, mm-hmm. and absolutely. I it's... guess I don't know what the solution is to get more treatment centers on board with working with geriatric patients, you know. And I mean, it, honestly, it may just it, it, not even that may be putting a band aid on on the issue because you know, opioid abuse in the, in the geriatric population has been a topic in the news for the last 10, 15 years. So that's definitely something that's going on too. And that may be, you know, where this issue for lack of assistance for the geriatric substance abuse community comes from too, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. (sighs) So... well there's only so much we can do (laughs) which is sad because we want to be able to do so much um and you know I think on a side note that's uh I guess maybe not I remember when I was uh getting my master's and think I was taking a class on the laws maybe I don't know some social workers go into like writing 
laws or writing um, policy policy. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, maybe this is where those kind of social workers could come into play is writing those kind like a policy for the prescription of medications to older adults. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a great solution, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, unless facilities, like, are forced to take these patients or, you know, there's really a lens looking at this. I don't don't know what the solution is, you know? Yeah. And, you know, one of the facilities that we did send geriatric patients to that they were – you know, accepting Medicare, you know, I mean, there were a lot of great folks working there, but it just wasn't a great facility, you know, Um, it wasn't like, you know, a a lot of substance abuse treatment programs, you know, they're doing groups a lot, and there's a lot of individual therapy, and, you know, there's skill building, and people are able to go outside like this facility was it was it was a locked facility so it was like we're sending them from one psych unit to another you know and eventually these folks go home you know so Mm -hmm. what you're saying like you know this it's not even a question of like just inpatient and residential it's how do we maintain this population once they're discharged from these facilities? And do we have facilities like assisted living and, you know, nursing homes that are able to really work with this population? And the, and the answer is no, like there's yeah. not a lot out there. You know, mm-hmm. I had one nursing home really that, would take patients that needed nursing home level of care, like mm-hmm. from my unit, you yeah. know, <laughs> out of what the 150 <laughs> that we yeah. you know, were able to really work with. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that says a lot right there. Yeah. You know, it's. Who's looking out for the older folks? <laughs> I know. We got to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, comment on our Instagram page <laughs> if, if you work with them. Um, yeah, it's 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 hard. It's hard to see that, and you know, and that's the the clients that we work most with are you know older adults. So it's something that we definitely see often. Absolutely. So I I guess that concludes um, this episode. You know, we'd love to hear from our geriatric social workers out there, you know, because obviously we've identified this this gap in care and we want to know what everyone's opinions are about it. You know, Um, it's it's definitely something ongoing, Um, but we also want to apologize, you know, for the delay. I know we didn't get a December episode out there, um, but I did move. So, you know, we had some stuff going on. Um, yes. And I think next week we're going to talk about, you know, uh, what it feels like to leave a job, you know, and, you know, transition into a new position. Because I know that's something that a lot of folks, you know, have done. So, um, you know, thank you for listening and, 
we're going to be back next month. I don't know if you have anything to add, Catherine. No, I think, yeah, just thanks for, for hanging in there with us. And we'd love to hear your opinion about anything we've discussed. Because uh, this, you know, this is inclusive and we want, we want to hear from you. So, so thanks for listening and we will see you all next month. Sounds great. See you guys then. Bye.